0: Let us stand together as we prepare to read God's word. Our Old Testament reading this morning will come to us from Psalm 106. We'll be reading portions of this psalm, verses 6 through 15, and then 44 through 48. We've chosen this psalm today to read because it's a memorial of God's work for his people. A very short account of the things that he's done, but important for understanding this is who the Lord is. And this is why he is to be trusted by his people. So Psalm 106, beginning in verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the desert and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. Turning now to verse 44 of the same chapter, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give glory excuse me, give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, amen. Praise the Lord. Now let us turn to our main reading today, our new Testament reading. We'll be continuing to read of Matthew's account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. We'll be reading of the next temptation. So we'll be reading from Matthew chapter four. Verses 5, 6, and 7. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him, that is Jesus, on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone," Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The prophet says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let us pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this word of scripture, which has come to us today throughout centuries, a passage of time preserved for us so that you can speak to us. We ask, Father, that you clear our hearts and minds so that we can receive what you you are saying through Scripture. Bless my mouth, Father, and help me to speak only what is in accord with true holiness and godliness. Bless the meditations of all our heart. Let them be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Why do we test things? Why do we put things to the test? Because we want to determine if something has a good quality or make sure it meets up to a certain standard. I mean, if it does meet that standard, awesome. If it doesn't, then things might need to be done differently or you might need something different. For a very practical example, consider the components of your car. Before they sold you your car, the manufacturer had to make sure that all the various parts worked properly and were installed properly upon your car. Think about that when you're driving home today after worship, And think about how good it really is that someone made sure that your brakes worked properly before they sold you your car. Or another example, think about how we test precious gemstones and precious metals like silver and gold to determine their quality. Some types of metals are simply more valuable and more pure than others. But if they're not necessarily as pure, they might be useful in a different sort of a way. For example, 24 karat gold is more valuable for jewelry, looks nicer in jewelry, no question about that. But lower quality gold might have an industrial purpose that makes it more useful or a better, more efficient use than 24 karat gold. But you're not going to know whether you have 24 karat gold or something lesser, some kind of lesser quality, until you put it to the test and you certify that it is whatever it is. But well, we test people just as much as objects and for similar reasons. For school, for example, in school, why does your teacher sit you down, children, for an hour or two and make you write about difficult stuff? If the teacher is good, it's not because they're trying to torture you it's because they are trying to make sure that you have a good enough grasp of whatever the subject is that you're getting quizzed or tested on and make sure that you're capable of passing this exam, capable of passing this class. The school wants to get a sense of what your limits are in a given subject and make sure that you meet that certain standard before you graduate. Now we might also talk about how we test one's patience. I'm sure every person in this building has experienced that one guy Who does everything they can think of to just needle you and see how long it takes for you to finally blow up? That's not good. I'm not encouraging that, but it is a form of testing. They're testing where your limits of your patience are and what the consequences of breaking those limits will be. Now, as we read the Bible, you would notice that there are a number of different points where God says, where God talks about putting him to the test, or one of his prophets talks about how Israel has put God to the test actually in the, just a couple of months that we've been here, we've talked about testing the Lord by my recollection. We've talked about testing the Lord on at least two different occasions. And in both instances that we talked about somebody testing the Lord, God was inviting someone to test him for a very specific reason. But I also tried to make clear of those sermons and those passages. Those were exceptional instances when God says, put me to the test. That is rare for scripture. The vast majority of the time when someone talks about testing the Lord, it is a stern negative. Scripture actively, strongly discourages putting the Lord to the test. It is not something that is acceptable for God's people to do, period. But why? What does it even mean to test the Lord and why is it such a bad thing? We have to grapple with that as human beings and Jesus himself had to grapple with the realities of this too. He had to ask what it meant to put the Lord to the test and why it wasn't something he should do. And he had to grapple with such questions in difficult circumstances. Last week when we read of Jesus' first temptation, we saw that he was being assaulted by the devil himself in the in the wilderness. I think I lost my battery. Okay, sorry about that. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness, and he was on an empty stomach that's not great circumstances to be tested in to be tempted. in. And he's still in that same circumstance now still working off of an empty stomach, but just as before Jesus triumphed over that temptation and over the ancient dragon our theme to summarize, this is this. The Son of God learned not to undermine his faith by by testing his father's trustworthiness. We will see what that means, what he overcame, and how in this passage. Thank you. We will see what it means not to undermine Jesus' faith by examining the temptation and Jesus' own response to it. The temptation was to test the Lord, and the response of Jesus was instead to trust the Lord. The temptation to test the Lord is our first main point. Now, in our last sermon last week, we saw Satan trying to get Jesus to misuse his messianic powers, to make bread for himself when the Lord had not instructed him to do so. Now, Jesus resisted that temptation, but I'm sure as you've experienced, temptation to do one thing or another doesn't just go away because you've said no to it once. And the devil didn't give up just because of one simple setback. If bread wasn't important to Jesus, perhaps something else would work better. Surely there would be something else that works better. This is just another man who's waiting to bite from Adam's apple, and waiting to sin like all of the rest. Verse five reads, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. How Satan did this exactly is unclear. But somehow he took Jesus out of the desert and set him on top of the temple in Jerusalem, the center of God's worship in earth. Then he put Jesus on top of the temple where we would have been able to jump off. Now, according to historians, part of the temple at that time, faced the Kidron Valley, which is a big valley off of the side of Jerusalem, off of the Mount that Jerusalem sits upon. That's a drop of hundreds and hundreds of feet down to the ground. Jumping off the bow, into the valley at any point in time was going to guarantee death. And jumping off the temple, that's even higher. You're not gonna survive if you jump off of this. So knowing all this, the devil played his hand. Verse six, he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, jump. he had taken Jesus to the highest place with the intention of getting him to jump of his own free will. Well, we must understand Satan was not encouraging Jesus to kill himself. He's saying if Jesus jumps, then certainly his Father in heaven will be there to make sure that he gets through completely unscathed. He'll send his angels and he'll carry they'll carry you down. If Jesus really is the Son of God, everything will be totally fine. Well, how could, how could Satan be so certain of something like that? Well, for one thing, look at where you are. This isn't just a random high place in the world. This isn't just a random mountain or hill. This is the temple of God himself. If God is paying attention to anything that happens on earth, certainly it's his own house. And besides, didn't he say that he loves you? That you're his beloved son? Well, certainly if he loves you, he's gotta be watching after you and he's gonna notice when you're in danger. Especially if you're right at the doorstep of his own house. What kind of lousy father would he have to be to just let his son get into danger and not take care of him? Or did Jesus not really trust his father to protect him if he was in danger? I mean, certainly Jesus knows scripture and he's read of how God saved his people from danger time and time again. He knows how Daniel was rescued from the lion's den. He knows how the infant Moses was set adrift in the Red Sea and rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. He knows how David was delivered from Goliath, from Saul and from any number of other enemies, but how could Jesus know that he has that same edge of protection around himself? How could Jesus really be sure that he would be protected from danger unless he had actually seen that protection with his own eyes? how could he know that the angels would save him unless he felt their hands on his body I mean, it's better to be certain now in a relatively safe controlled environment rather than wait for real danger to come to you and maybe be wrong i mean what fool doesn't take a test drive before buying the car you got to be certain about these things and then then satan goes a step further jesus said before that the bible was more important to him than eating well, Satan knows that same scripture and according to him, the Bible would encourage Jesus to jump. In fact, still in verse six, Satan said, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands. He will bear you up lest they lest you strike your foot against a stone. You must understand, Satan did not misquote scripture here. That is an accurate translation. Uh, from the original Hebrew into the Greek and brought to us in English. Satan didn't screw up with any of these words in Scripture. And based on those verses which come to us from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, Satan said it's perfectly reasonable for you to jump. It encourages you to jump. In fact, doesn't the Psalm just promise to you that anyone who trusts in the Lord is going to be watched over by the angels of God? Don't they have orders to guard God's people from danger? And if that's true for those common sheep, whom you're so bent on saving for some unknown reason, how much more true must it be for you? Come on, dude, you're the son of God. If he's going to direct his angels to look after anyone in the cosmos and keep them from harm, it's got to be you. Just jump. You'll see. You're not even going to get a stubbed toe out of the incident. What is Satan trying to do by telling Jesus these things? He wants Jesus to test the Lord as God. He wants Jesus to put the Father into a situation where he, the Father, is forced to intervene. But we have to understand as well, Jesus is not in any real danger at this point. He's not dangling by his fingertips from the parapet. He's not about to fall because he slipped somehow. The only way that Jesus would be in danger in this place, in this instance, is if he put himself there on purpose the devil had had his way jesus would have jumped because he had started doubting what scripture had said jesus knew the law and the prophets inside and out but what if he stopped believing in what they said or what if he misunderstood them or misapplied them suppose he was he he, jesus had read psalm 22 verses 4 and 5 In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued in you. They trusted and were not put to shame. What if after reading that Jesus started wondering, does that really apply to me? Can I really be sure that the father will deliver me out of any trial as he did the fathers, shouldn't I make sure don't I have the right to make sure from my own experiences? I'm the son of God. I'm the firstborn of creation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. If someone has the right to feel safe and secure, it's me. What if Jesus had started thinking those things? As we said, Satan wanted to cause these things by reading to Jesus scripture. And he didn't change any of the words of the Psalm. You see, the problem wasn't in the quotation itself. That was an accurate quotation problem was in how Satan interpreted them, how he applied that psalm. When rightly understood, the point of Psalm 91 as a whole unit, as a whole psalm, is because the psalmist wants to increase the faith of the believer. Psalm promises as a unit that God will protect the person who depends upon him, that no matter the danger or despair the person faces, that God will take the believer through it, and he will rescue him. But the way the psalm was interpreted excuse me, by Satan, he wanted Jesus to doubt God's faithfulness. He wanted Jesus to question, is that really true for me? Or on the other hand, perhaps Satan was trying to get Jesus to presume upon God's faithfulness. Because God will get me out of this, because God is certain to send his angels to get me out of danger, I can just jump and it'll be fine. I can do any stupid thing I put my mind to and God will get me through it. Whatever the way that Satan was trying to get Jesus to act, act or think, he wanted Jesus to determine to his own satisfaction that what God said was really true. And he did this by cherry picking from the same Bible that we have today on our laps. The parts that would have made his deception false that would have exposed his deception were just kind of left to the side Verses like Psalm 91 verse 13, for example, immediately after his quotation were ignored because they wouldn't help his argument. And that verse Psalm 91 13 says this, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. That wouldn't help Jesus very much. After all, reminding him that Satan, the serpent, the adder from the Garden of Eden, would be crushed under his divine heel is not going to help the devil very much. In our Reformed church circles, we talk about interpreting the Bible with the Bible itself. We ask, what is the infallible rule for interpreting the scriptures? And the answer to that is the scripture itself. And the reason we say that is because it is very, very easy to isolate a passage of scripture from the rest of the Bible, from the context of its own book, or even from the context of the entire Bible as a whole, and then completely misunderstand what God is actually saying, what one of the prophets or apostles or someone else wrote. Now, sometimes we do that accidentally, the way that a child might read a book and then not understand what he or she just read and not speak correctly about it. That's a mistake. That happens. But more often than not, when scripture gets twisted, when an error gets promulgated, which gets spread out very quickly, very far, it's either an intentional twisting, someone read a passage of scripture and deliberately twisted its meaning, deliberately twisted the interpretation to deceive people, or this happens. This error gets spread widely because a person refuses to be corrected. For example, take any of the major Christian, very big scare quotes, very big um, Christian cults from the last 150 years. Religions like Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, they would claim to be Christians. They would claim to be your brothers and sisters in Christ, but go over their interpretations of the Bible. I promise you, if you look at how they interpret scripture, you're going to find major points where we disagree with them. Where someone took a particular doctrine or a particular passage of scripture, misinterpreted it, misapplied it, and then the whole religion just spiraled out of control so that it is no longer Christian in any form of the word. Or consider on a more personal level, consider the man who rules over his family as a tyrant with an iron fist or the woman who uses her tongue the gossip, and it's like a dagger under Brent's back. If you rent the right verse out of its context, you can justify either sorts of behavior with scripture. Justify. But not everything that glitters is gold. Not every interpretation of the Bible is helpful or correct or valid. First John 4, verse 1 warns us Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. As Christians, we need to be very, very careful with scripture. And read from it only what God himself has said. That's very true for me on Sunday. I can't just stand up here and say whatever I feel like about scripture. It has to be checked against what scripture itself is saying. Otherwise, I failed at my job. And you need to take note of that. If I'm saying something that's not from scripture, tell me, please. I don't want to give you guys something wrong, tell you guys something wrong, and have you believe me about that wrong thing, or just go on and say it's not important. But it's also true for us in our individual lives. How we interpret the the Bible to ourselves, to our children, to our families, that matters a great deal. We must be very careful not to misuse the word of God for our own purposes. Instead, let us receive the word and pass it on with clarity and accuracy, lest we follow in the devil's example and twist it to our own evil purposes. Unfortunately, our savior wasn't tricked by Satan's silver tongue, nor was he willing to buy into this abuse of scripture. Rather than develop any doubts in his father, his faith held firm, as we see in his response to trust the Lord. When the devil challenged him to jump from the temple, Jesus responded in verse 7. He said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's use of the Bible was a deliberate twisting of the truth, a twisting away from its true meaning. And Jesus didn't simply try to out logic the the devil. Instead, he brought another scripture to the table and clarified the meaning Satan said, this means X. And Jesus said, No, this is what it actually means based on this other portion of scripture that you've neglected. Rather than be encouraged to jump from the temple then, Jesus understood that the Bible was telling him not to test the Lord. Now, at first glance, that actually might seem a little bit odd. What is the the relationship between throw yourself off the temple and don't put the Lord to the test? How do those things match up with each other? What has one got to do with the other? Well, Jesus' quotation comes to us from Deuteronomy 6 verse 16, which is itself a reference to another portion of scripture, Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. In that Exodus passage, Exodus 17. The people of israel were faced with a very serious problem early in their march into the wilderness they had come to a portion of the desert where there wasn't any water that's not good but more serious than the need for water was the reaction of the people to this problem they started quarreling and fighting with god demanding that he give them water through moses you see the problem wasn't simply that the people were asking for water they're in the desert Water is necessary or they're going to die. That's not up for debate. The problem is and the thing that upset God was that the people didn't think that he was trustworthy enough to actually give them water. Exodus 17, verse three, the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That is not a request for God to make good on his promise to love his people. That is not a request for water in the honest sense. That is the petulant demand of a spoiled brat who says that his his parents don't love him, and he will only know that his parents love him if they do what he says right now. This is the children of God claiming that the Lord brought them into the desert with the express purpose of watching them die of thirst. In a word, they didn't believe that the Lord was trustworthy. And that he was going to bring them to the promised land. And the only thing that could take away their doubts was if the Lord miraculously gave them water in the desert. Now the Lord did so. He did give them water in the desert. He planned to do so. In fact, through Moses, but Israel's sin at this site, what was a great colossal. Even the site became known in Hebrew as Masa and Meribah. in English, that would mean testing, or quarreling. Imagine, imagine having a fight with your spouse that is so massive that that city forever becomes known as the city of argument, the city of contention. That's how serious this problem was. It became a defining incident in Israel's history. Several times later in the Bible, a psalmist or a prophet will refer back to that incident at Meribah and Massah and always make the same point with it. Do not do this again. For example, Psalm 95, verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Why does the Lord call this testing exactly? Because at that time, Israel had already seen what God had done in Egypt. The incident that happened in the desert when they asked for water, when they crawled with God from water, could only have taken place a couple of weeks, perhaps a couple of months after they had left Egypt. And in Egypt, what did they see? They saw God take the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time in history and systematically snap every one of its bones. Their water, their agriculture, their livestock, their health, their economy, their religion, the life of their future God king none of it was safe from the lord of hosts he had taken away all of those things from egypt with the express purpose of freeing the people of israel from the tyranny of pharaoh and yet here is israel only a few days later having seen all this and they're saying do it again do a miracle again perform for us or we'll know that you really hate us they put god on a platform and said do what we want when we say so, how we say so. It's a little like that old joke about the drill sergeant. Sarge says, jump, the cadet says, yes, sir. How high, sir, on his way up. It's a dumb joke, frankly, I don't like the joke. And it's no joke for God to have this done to him by mankind because it's a manipulation. It's the creature telling the creator, dance for me when I play music like my trained monkey. But God doesn't dance to the beat that his creatures set, and he will not honor them when they put him on the testing platform like this, when they look at his faithfulness and say, do for me what I say, or I'll know that you really aren't faithful, that you really can't be trusted. Why would jumping from this temple have put got to the test? Because if Jesus had jumped, it would have been a demand for his father to miraculously demonstrate his faithfulness when he didn't wish to do so, when there was no need for him to do so. Jesus knew that his father was faithful. He knew that he would be brought safely through every trial that he experienced on earth until he reached his throne in heaven. He knew that even death on the cross couldn't derail the protection that he would have from his father. What more possible proof could he ask for from God? because he knew all this from scripture, he knew the character of his father. How could he possibly ask for more proof? What reason would he have to doubt God's faithfulness? From the jump from the temple when there was no reason to do so, it would mean that Jesus had actively derailed his continued faith in his father and allowed doubt to take the place of faith. It It would have meant that in his heart, he would have started asking, do I really know for sure that God will deliver me from harm. If I am going to the cross to die, do I really know that he will raise me from the dead? But he already knew this for a fact. He knew that his father would indeed raise him from the dead. He knew that he would be delivered from the clutches of the tomb. So there was no reason for him to ask for more proof, every reason not to. So on the one hand, it would have been a major doubt for him to judge, or to judge God and to jump from the temple. But on the other hand, it would have been extremely presumptuous. It would mean that God. Jesus was thinking, of course, my father will guard me so I can just do anything I want without fear of consequence. My father is God Almighty, and he'll make sure that everything turns out good. So there is no consequences for anything I do. Jesus had faith in his father, but faith never became presumption. While faith believes that God is faithful, and that Jesus would be saved from every trial. Presumption assumed that he could do any dumb thing that he set his mind to, that of course God will just work with it. And the son of God refused to entertain such presumption in his heart, not even for a moment. When all is said and done, when Jesus came to be born on earth, he came as a servant to his father. From eternity past, He delighted in doing the will of his father and that continued to be his driving influence on earth as god's servant he didn't say to his master didn't get to say to his master didn't desire to say to his master i'll take all the benefits that i get from working from you but you don't get to ask me to do anything you don't get to ask me to obey you Nor did he say well i've done what you asked me to do so now you need to do what i say as a reward we're going to switch places now I'll be the master and you can be my servant. No, as Philippians two verses seven and eight say, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He who was the heir of all things. When we proclaim to be worthy of all praise and glory in all the cosmos made himself a servant a slave a slave who died for others willingly with faith that his father would raise him from the dead after three days and exalt him to the highest place in all of the universe and we praise that same servant with our voices by obeying the word that he has given to us but worshiping him Because he alone is worthy to receive our worship. Despite the cabling throne that awaited him, Jesus was committed to saving his Father. Because of that, as long as he was on earth, he refused to do anything that would undermine his trust or service to his Father. He didn't need to test the Father, and he recognized that to do so would completely destroy his role as the suffering servant that would undermine the very work that he was sent on earth to accomplish. There was nothing to gain from jumping from the temple. So he refused to doubt God or to presume upon his help. Jesus simply rested upon what he knew to be true. And he did not put the Lord, his God, to the test. Doubt and presumption are more closely related than we think sometimes. Doubt questions, is God really trustworthy? presumption declares, God will just do anything for me. Neither attitude really believes in the Lord, though. And both really just want to force God to do their bidding. Doubt asks for proof. Presumption just assumes. But both attitudes really just say, do what I want. And I'll know that if you don't that you really hate me. Neither doubt nor presumption is an attitude of love or is acceptable for God's people. Both doubt and presumption are manipulations, manipulators that try to force God to act according to our commands. Really, they're not that different in spirit from the things that pagan religions do. Now in our Christian churches in our modern churches, we would completely be aghast if someone suggested that we start instituting something like ritual prostitution or human sacrifices in our church. But why did ancient religions do those things, because they are trying to manipulate the forces of nature, they're trying to get the gods of the universe, hey, pay attention, I did this thing now do something for me. Now we would turn our noses up to doing those kinds of things in the church today and rightly so. That's evil. That's wrong. Besides the fact that simply killing someone to get God's attention is simply wrong. We don't get to force God to do what we want. But doubt and presumption have the same spirit. They say to God, do what I tell you. I've done this. So now do for me what I tell you to do. When either of them get a foothold in our lives, presumption or doubt, they kick God out of the driver's seat of our lives. And they put our own demands there instead. My sister once told me about a boy in her youth group who wanted a new phone new smartphone that his parents wouldn't get for him. As I understand it, he just didn't need a new one, perhaps they couldn't afford it at the time, whatever the reason was. I didn't know this kid personally, I just heard the story. But because his parents refused to get him a phone, this brilliant child jumped into a pool and forgot to take his phone out of his pocket. He was trying to force his parents to do something that they thought was unwise and unnecessary right now. Now we shake our heads at that kind of thing and say wow that was really selfish and kids if any of you get any kind of idea that this is what you should do, because you want that new smartphone. You did not get this idea from me i'm not encouraging you to do this, and if you do do it, then you deserve the punishment, you get from your parents, this is not something to put into practice. But the thing is, we look at that and say that's wrong that's dumb, And then we do the same thing to God. Very often we act like we can force him to do what we want by doing the right thing so that he'll give us the reward for our obedience. Sometimes we even might put ourselves at risk doing something that we know is simple because, well, God will just get me out of it, I can put myself into this relationship pursue this kind of business practice and God will just get me through it. I can just do this. And God will get me out of trouble so things won't get too bad. Both of those things are poisons in the life of a Christian. So, what's the antidote? Trusting that what God has said is true. What he has said, for instance, for example, he will meet our needs, he'll protect us from danger. Since he has said that about himself, do we really need to put ourselves into danger to guarantee that this is so? To test that this is so? Do we demand that God meet all of our needs in the way that he that we demand? Cause miracles to happen? For example, do we say, God, I want you to do a miracle for me so that I know that you're looking out for me? Do we need that miracle? No. We don't put the Lord to the test like that. Instead, we hold on to Him with faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You trust in your salvation because God has promised it to you through Christ. Even though he's not given you something like a certificate, for example, to hang upon your wall that says, I'm guaranteed to look out for you, you still believe in him. You still believe that it is so. We trust that God is making us fit to be in his presence in heaven, even though we struggle to obey. Temptation often knocks at the door of our heart. Where do you get the hope to believe that eternal life is true that it really is yours. You get that hope, that faith that results from it from the Lord, because he has promised you in his word that he is faithful and that he will not leave you nor forsake you. We test things because we need to make sure that they meet requirements. Like I suggested before, You need to test your car brakes or your steering wheel because you need to rely upon them. You need to know that those are trustworthy things. But we don't test the Lord because we know that he is trustworthy. He's declared that to be so in scripture. He's proven it to you time and time again. How he's protected you, how he sustained you, how he sent his son to save you, and his Holy Spirit to testify to your salvation. He's told you all about it in Scripture. So he doesn't need to do anything more than that doesn't need to perform miracles for us to prove that he is there so before we make demands of what god ought to do for us let us remember everything he has already done and not undo the faith not undermine the faith that he's already begun to make real in us amen shall we pray Father God, we thank you for this word of scripture. We thank you for how you've proven yourself to be trustworthy so many times in our lives, Lord, how you've shown it to us in scripture and demonstrated it to us visibly and invisibly, Lord. We ask that you would indeed increase our faith and help us not to put you to the test. When doubt and presumption knock at the door and demand a place, help us to reject them because you have said that you are not to be tested, Lord. Help us not to test you. Help us to believe that what you've said about yourself what you've said about giving us eternal life in Jesus Christ is true. And it's in the name of your son and our redeemer, the one who has given us that eternal life. We pray. Amen.